Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the A Champion's Mind podcast. Today, I've got special guest Andrew Dahlheim, who is a professional cyclist for the Holowesco Citadel, presented by Arapaho Resources Team. Andrew, thanks so much for your willingness to be on the podcast, man. Anytime, anytime. So let's jump right into it. Like, tell us a, a little bit about yourself and slash kind of how you got into the sport of cycling, just that whole journey. Yeah, Andrew Dahlheim from Dallas, Texas, um, now living in Greenville, South Carolina. Been racing now for full time. I think ten. I think 2018 will be my 11th year full time. Just kind of started as a little little junior turd, 13, uh, riding mountain bikes with my pops, and uh, yeah, just uh, slowly made the transition to road. Originally to get better at mountain biking, and uh, you know, just kind of following the opportunities that presented themselves, and you know, here I am. Like with most people, I've had a lot of people on the on the podcast and, you know, professional cyclists, like it just started off with just a very, I guess you would say, just a very innocent, very just going out and wanting to have a good time, just riding bikes around the neighborhood with your dad, who sounds like into bikes. And from there, it just kind of grew, didn't it? Yeah. So I grew up with family, like my parents divorced when I was real young. And so I'd go over to my dad's house on the weekend and uh, he was an avid mountain biker since I was, you know, real small. And, uh, he was a, uh, a trail steward out at this mountain bike trail, uh, real popular trail in, in North Dallas, uh, North Shore at Lake Grapevine. And so I'd go out there and, uh, help him build the trail, maintain the trail and just go ride with him. And, uh, you know, I'm still whipping around on a BMX bike with, with my buddies. And we go into Richardson Bike Mart one day when I was mm, 11 or 12. And, uh, this guy, who actually still works at Bike Mart named Mike Hinton. He's a service guy. He was running like a BMX section at the main store there in Richardson. And he was like, hey, man, you ever thought about racing? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be pretty fun. So I started racing BMX, showed up like blue jeans and a mountain bike helmet, like my very first race. And, uh, you know, we, my dad and I would still ride mountain bikes in the morning. And then we'd go to the nighttime races in DeSoto Friday and Saturday night. And my dad, like, toyed with the idea of, like, also getting a BMX bike and racing, like, the master's class or whatever. But I just wasn't really into it. And so he wanted to try mountain bike racing. And, of course, like, you know, I saw that as a good opportunity to, you know, do a little bit more father-son bonding type of stuff. So I think 2002 was our first Timbra, like, Texas mountain bike series race. And uh, it's actually pretty funny. The very first race we did was... The kickoff race of the spring series in 02, and there were over a thousand total racers entered <laughs> across all categories. A thousand. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think you're lucky to get like a few hundred, but a thousand. Yeah. That's, so. that's huge. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've heard about, I, I've been listening to a few podcasts and stuff like that, and they were talking about the fact that there was this golden era in mountain biking in the United States, and we've kind of passed that. and you know, attendance is kind of down at events and stuff like that. But it sounds like you were right in the middle of that era where mountain biking just was the thing. I mean, it was just so popular in, in the United States, like everybody was doing it. And so, yeah, a thousand people at a race. I can't imagine some of the bigger road races that we've got in Texas, you know, draw maybe 500. Uh, so you can just yeah. go ahead and double that. And you've got, you know, a bunch of people pedaling around on dirt, which is pretty awesome. And I think it ebbs and flows a lot, too, just with the different disciplines in cycling, at least in the U.S. I mean, I don't know what it's like over in Europe and stuff. Obviously, it's a much bigger sport over there. But, like, the first few 
like junior X mountain bike national races I did, there were 80 kids in my race. Wow. 80. <laughs> and, you know, it's like mountain bike was real big in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. And then like cyclocross got real hot for a while, you know, and like now it's, it's still pretty popular, but it seems like it's kind of leveling off a little bit. Like it seemed like it kind of reached a peak when nationals was in uh, Louisville. Yep. And then now everyone's all about like, you know, fixie crits, you know, like red hook is the big trend. You know, so there's more and more fixed geared crits popping up around this country. And then, of course, like the Red Hooks all over the world. And, you know, people are just drawn to like what's what's cool. And uh, unfortunately, road racing is kind of the, the stepchild. Like, I think it's the most stable, but also like, unfortunately, in this country, it's you get bad publicity or no publicity. So, right. It is what it is. So hopefully, you know, everything will, you know, just go through a cycle and mountain biking will get real popular again and road racing will pick up a fair bit. So let me we'll ask see. you this. I mean, you've been around for a long time. Like you said, man, you've been full time for 10 years, you know, over 10 years. I mean, I remember I came to Texas from Florida and I came in 2002 was when I showed up in Texas to come get my master's degree out here. And I remember going to the local crit over there in Plano Tuesday nights, you know, with Randy, Randy Eller's crit. And I remember seeing you out there, man, you were, you were a little guy, you know, but you've been doing this for a long time. So, I mean, I think you'd be a good guy to provide some insight. Like, why do you think that there is the popcorning around? And why do you think that like the, the road cycling is taking the brunt right now of the blow of just attendance being down and people not being very interested in it? I mean, is it, is there, you've done mountain biking, you've done some cyclocross. I know in the past, you've kind of done it all, you know, on the bicycle, you've done BMX stuff like would you say that road cycling lends itself to being a little bit more, quote unquote, boring and dry in terms of the rigors of everyday training and then what the racing looks like? Like, would you say that that's maybe part of it is like it's not as like, oh, cool, I get to go jump something or, oh, sweet, I get to get off my bike and run for a little while. Like, it's kind of monotonous more so than some of the other disciplines. Yeah, I think it's a number of things. First off, it's obviously a, a much larger time commitment. You know, you do a mountain bike race that may be an hour and a half, two hours max versus a road race, which is anywhere from what, 50 to 120 miles, just depending on your category. And so it's a much bigger time commitment with training, not to mention, you know, you're going from a pretty quick race to three, four hours long. And there are some road races that are pretty boring, like not to name any Texas races, but there are some races that I will absolutely never do <laughs> because they're, they're just, they're just not interesting. You know, like Lago Vista, for example, is one of my favorite races, period, because it's a pretty dynamic race. And, you know, yeah, it's just a, a small regional Texas race, but it's a fun course. The promoter's great. Like Don has done a great job every year of building it up, hyping it up, and it's great weather perfect time of year and pro teams have gone and had training camps down there in years past and had uh you know some some success following that so i definitely think that time commitment is one thing and also like licenses are getting more and more expensive mm -hmm. which you know it, it's part of it i mean i get it but it's you know equipment's getting more expensive and it's just a, a bigger commitment all around from every aspect but also like when i first jumped from like full-time from to the road from mountain biking, you could see a big personality shift. Like people would go to a mountain bike race and it was like, you weren't going there to like race. Like you were going for like an event, you know, like you go to a road race, you might show up an hour before your start race, pick up your check 
and head out, you know, say hey to a few friends. But at a mountain bike race, like at least when I was doing it regularly, you would show up like camp, shoot the shit with all your friends, do your race. And then like you'd hang out afterwards. And it was more of like a, like a party and it was a more social event, which I think is, you know, cyclocross is kind of filling that as well. Like that's very social. And, uh, so I just think road racing is, is kind of, yeah, like the more disciplined, boring, you know, discipline to do. Um, Yeah. That's interesting, man, that you would say that. I think that your last point is a really, really good one that, you know, I'll tease out a little bit further. Like we've got here in Texas, like we've got uh, the driveway down in Austin, which is like one of the, Uh, I would say it's probably one of the most popular weekly, you know, night crits in the entire country. And Oh, by far. It's not like number one. Yeah, and he's got a couple of different courses out there. He's got a couple of different ways that he can run that course, but let's face it. I mean, I think he runs three different variations of it out there. So let's just say he picks one a week. Like every month you're doing, you know, one if you go out there all the time. But what he's provided out there, little by little, he's built it. And he's got an awesome podcast out there somewhere on the internet where he talks about the evolution of the driveway and it's just awesome to see. So props to Willis, but like he's provided an experience out there at this point. Like there's food, there's music, people hang out. Like you're saying, it's more of it. You're right. It has more of that mountain bike cyclocross kind of feel to it versus the, you know, suit and tie business type feel of a road race. So I think you're absolutely right there, you know, and, and the, I guess the go between between like the traditional road racing and like, let's say mountain bike cyclocross would be like a criterium. And, and what do criteriums do? They generally try to provide yep. you a little bit more of an experience, you know, uh, a little bit more of, oh, hey, there's bars on the course and there's going to be people out here. We're going to have music. We'll have an announcer. You'll get to see people a little bit more coming around and people kind of hang out a little bit more. So if there was an equivalent in road racing, to the mountain bike cyclocross kind of field dynamic, I think it would be crits. And lo and behold, those are the more popular events, right? So, yeah, I, just, I think there's a lot of reasons out there. It's, it's kind of unfortunate because road cycling is beautiful in and of itself. And like you mm-hmm. said, it's tough. But, you know, hopefully we'll get a little bit of a rebound coming here soon with maybe some innovation from some people to kind of change it up a little bit and get it maybe a little bit more interesting for fans or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I think, so going back to the driveway, I mean, I've, been a huge fan of Andrew Willis since I lived in Austin on Hotel San Jose and he was a racer and not even a a race promoter. And I've seen the evolution of the driveway. I remember when it was just that top portion, like the bottom half of the driveway didn't even exist. Yeah. And Barry Lee was promoting it and like it had a great attendance and he did a good job, you know, getting sponsors and everything for it. But it was more laid back, like pay 10 bucks. Like I remember showing up and I would just have my number pinned on from the race that previous weekend and they would just be like, what number are you? Okay. Number three. Okay, cool. You're good to go. And I wouldn't even have like a driveway number. And the way Willis has been able to promote it, like find mini series sponsors and like, yeah, the weekly price has gone up, but you can see a very obvious return in what you're paying for. Like it is a production. And I think anyone who's trying to promote races full time, like should take an Andrew Willis clinic to be honest, because I haven't seen anyone that does a better job, at least with a series. You know, like some people are really good at having like a one day race or like they put all their heart and soul into like one race, but he does it for the entire time change basically. And it's just always different, like you said. And you get the impression that he's not doing it to make money. I mean, of course it is his job, but it's like he just genuinely loves it. Yeah. And I think that's also where like 
a lot of things get lost too. Just from my observation, like my opinion is people get money hungry and they forget why they started doing it in the first place. And so prices go way up and you're not seeing much in return. Like I was talking to a promoter here in Greenville not long ago who puts on like a lot of cyclocross races and helping him out with like a junior mountain bike cyclocross clinic. And I'm like, man, like I don't do a race because the money is good, but I'll do it because the event is good. Mm. And if the event is crappy, then I expect a good payout, at least for X number of dollars. I understand like there's always, you know, different fees for the city or, you know, liability. Like I, I get all that. But, you know, if you're if you're trying to get rich off of it, like you're in it for the wrong reason. And so I just want some kind of production. Like you got to get something in return, either a good experience or I mean, I hate to say it, but like money, like a prize purse is what draws the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. You know, going back to like the crit racing, too, you know, like I've never done that Red Bull last stand event, but I've heard like this year they did a missing out format, like just taking a track to a crit race or track event to a, a crit race. And that sounds pretty intriguing to me and uh yeah that's that's one that i'd like to put on my calendar for the next year is you know just something different like mix it up and sounds like a pretty good atmosphere and an an awesome part of texas yeah so well there you go man for those of you that are listening to this y'all find him on social media and y'all let him know closer to that red bull last stand y'all let him know that he said on the podcast he's coming down to do it so that'd be pretty cool to have him out there (laughs) and doing it but yeah like that missing out exactly like you just change it up you know, it makes it really interesting for everybody involved, right? It shakes up tactics. I mean, you have to race it differently and stuff like that. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, man. So so let's jump back in here and let's talk a little bit more about you. So, okay, you're doing the mountain bike thing. You're, you know, you get involved. You know, you've got your buddy at Richardson Bike Mart that gets you the bike. And, hey, you know, let's start thinking a little bit about racing. At some point, though, Andrew, you probably had to start kind of putting two and two together. Like, man, I, like, I, I like doing this, right? I'm passionate about it. Like you said, like, I, I'm not, I mean, you're looking at it now at 29 years old and you've been able to make a living off of it. But that's not what you were thinking when you were, you know, 11 years old. But at some point you started realizing, like, dude, I like doing this and I want to take this as as far as I can. Like, at what point do you think that you began thinking to yourself, like, this is what I want to do. And quite honestly, this is no longer a hobby for me. This is like I'm pushing chips in, you know, in the middle of the table for this thing. You know, at what point did that come for you, do you think? Well, I think that point came for me when I was a junior in high school. And uh, so I grew up playing football, like from the time I was seven years old until I was 17. You know, I played, you know, football, like all through high school. And uh, like my dream was to play college football. Like I didn't care about NFL or anything like that. Like I didn't have my ambition, my ambition set quite that high. But my dad went to the University of Nebraska and only person in my family to my immediate family to graduate from college. And so I was like, man, Nebraska being a good team from like one of the original, like blue bloods of the sport, you know, I was like, oh, I want to go play football there. And, you know, I was good, but, you know, as I got older, you know, I'm still smaller guy. Like I was quick, but this was before Wes Welker made the small white boy slot receiver, like in vogue, you know? And so yeah. I was like, ah, oh, you, you know, like, I'm good, but I don't see a lot of playing time. And, you know, I just saw like that ceiling was, I was getting pretty close. And so I was like, man, like, what else am I going to do? Like, I had no idea, you know, and I just switched high schools too. I was going to basically Plano West High School and then I moved to Carrollton Creek View and I was like, man, this is not 
not what I like. And at the same time, I had an opportunity to go to Europe with the U.S. national team. And uh, I just remember like one of my last days of my junior year of high school and I'm just sitting in, in my desk taking an exam. And uh, my football coach was my uh, math teacher. And I'm like sitting there and I'm just like pondering like what I'm doing. You know, like I hated school, just absolutely hated it. Like a decent student, but I just like I would never take my school home with me. You know, like I just wanted nothing to do with it. And so like my grades weren't the best because I just didn't put in the work outside of the classroom. And so I'm like sitting there, I put my name on my math exam and I sit there for like two or three minutes. I'm like, nah, not for me. <laughs> so I, I get up, I turn my exam in to my math, my, uh, my math teacher, who's also my football coach. And I said, have a good summer. And I haven't been back into school since then. And I went to Europe, like with the junior national team, which side note, I don't recommend anyone doing, but it was, I felt like it was the best option for me because I knew what I was going to do in the future, whether it's bike racing or not, it, it wasn't going to be traditional yeah. uh, in any, in any sense. Yeah. I went to Europe for a couple months as a junior and I was like, oh, you know, like this is pretty cool. I'd like to do this, but I'm still like not really thinking professional cyclist. Like it's just like kind of, you know, pie in the sky, like best case scenario at that point, but I'm still 17, 18 years old. Like I turned 18 in Europe and, you know, I come back, I get my GED and my dad's like, you know, there's tons of community colleges in Dallas. So like that was always an option, but my dad's like, if you want to go to school, you can go to school. If you want to be a bike racer, you can be a bike racer, but I can't afford both. So you got to choose. <laughs> so I uh, got on Team Hotel San Jose, which was like the premier domestic elite team in our region and moved down to Austin in 2007 and raced there, like doing the calendar and everything. And I'd set like little goals along the way and uh, just kept meeting those goals and just kind of like going wherever the wind blows me and, you know, going to whatever races they wanted to send me to and still kind of thinking of wanting to go pro and just kind of bounced around a couple of different teams and yeah, just followed the opportunities. And fortunately I was like, you know, just good enough that, you know, meeting these goals that teams kept wanting me. And so I got on Metro Volkswagen and I think I was 20 or 21. I had under 23 nationals coming up and that was always my big goal was nationals every year. I could always manage to, you know, be on good form for nationals. And I was like, all right, well, my goal is to be on a pro team by the time I'm graduated under 23 and uh, had a good nationals. And Omer Kim, the director of Bissell Pro Cycling, was following the race and uh, saw saw my ride there and contacted Lee Whaley and Christian Helmig and uh, got my contact and yeah I met my basically my biggest goal to that point in my life and so I've just been able to keep parlaying that into something something new bigger better so here I am and here you are here you are like going into your eleventh year I want to spend some time here because. So, you know, if there's a, I guess if there's a parent out there listening, they're like, okay, I need to, I need to skip through this part of the interview because I don't want my son or my daughter to hear that this guy dropped out of school, right? Uh, because school, because school is, because school is important. But I do want to bring it up and I do want to talk about it a little bit because you said traditional, right? And when I hear traditional, nowadays being a little bit older and a little bit more, I guess maybe some people would call me wise, maybe not. When I hear traditional, I say, is it really? Is it really traditional? What, why is it traditional? Right? I question that. Like traditional is, you know, okay, traditional in this country, you go to college, you, you spend your four years, you come out with a degree. Okay, but let's look at it. Like you knew 
from a very young age, I mean, a junior in high school, you're not very old there. You knew, like, dude, this is this is just not for me. Like, if I keep doing this, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be content. Like, this is not the life that I want for myself. Which, by the way, kudos to you, is super mature, right? So, but you didn't do the, I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to go sit on the couch. Like, yeah. you know, because that's what parents, like, fear is. Well, my son, you know, or my daughter, like, they just became super lazy. Like, they're just living off of me. Like, they don't pay rent. You didn't do that. You did, you know, say, hey, you know what? I'm out on the school thing. But then you got to work on, like, okay, how am I going to now make a way for me to be able to do this, right? And it's like, hey, you know, I know you got on San Jose. I mean, I remember that team was, like, you guys were lights out. And I remember Metro Volkswagen. I remember Helmig. And I remember, but, like, it wasn't like you were sitting at home and all of a sudden, like, a letter arrived in the mail saying, hey, come on over and ride for us. Like, we've heard about you. It was It was you, like, having to make that path in that way for yourself to get noticed by these teams, to get on these teams. So it wasn't like you weren't working hard, you know, it wasn't like you weren't right. training and riding your bike. I mean, you realize like, this is something that I want to do and now I need to make it happen. So I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things like I'm looking at you, you know, now at 29 and I've just known you for a long time and dude, you're happy. You know, you, you're a homeowner like out there in North Carolina, like You've done it. And no, it wasn't quote unquote traditional. But again, my question to that would be, dude, what if you would have stayed in school? Like we'd be talking to a completely different Andrew Dahlheim if we're talking to you at all. And you might be like, right. dude, I hate my life, you know? Well, yeah. So let me clarify this. Like when I made this decision in my mind, like I'm taking the easy way out because I loved riding my bike. Like I didn't know how far it was going to take me, but that's yeah, that's what I like to do. So at the time, mm. I thought I was taking the easy way out. Like yeah. 11 years later, like, do I think that? <laughs> nope. That's interesting, and, uh, man. But, but I won't, because nothing has been easy about this. I mean, it's stressful. Like every day, day in, day out, it is stressful. And, yeah. uh, but I mean, I, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. But I was, like I said, I was living with my dad and, you know, he has a degree uh, double major, um, journalism and photography, and he doesn't do anything with that degree. And now he works IT. And until recently he hated his job. He hated what he was doing. And now he's like a little bit better job and he gets to work from home, has a lot more freedom. So he's enjoying his life a lot more, but he, he did the traditional thing. Like you graduate high school, you go to college and major in something that you're interested in at that time. But how many people actually get a degree and do something with directly related to that degree yeah and so i knew like okay i'm gonna go to school like what am i gonna do okay i'll probably get a business degree because you know i feel like that was pretty vast you know like you can cover a lot of bases with that but i've learned more about my interests in the last five years than i have in my previous 25 years of living like now you know if cycling were to end tomorrow like i'd probably do something home related because i really enjoy working on my house or you know, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I would much rather, and maybe this is, you could say that this is a lack of ambition, but I would rather be a barista at a fancy coffee shop because I enjoy making and drinking coffee. You know, yeah. like that's, that's pretty much like some people would say that's a case of the give ups, but you know, I like it, you know, and I, I don't want to be like tied down to something I don't like just, you know, for money, you know? Right. So. Well, I like what you said. You said at the time, I feel like I was taking the easy way out. And I want to 
unpack that a little bit. It sounds to me like what you meant by that was, okay, here's the deal. Let's just use this example because I think it will work well. I'm going to work 40 hours a week. Let's just say that. And I'm either going to work, you know, 40 hours a week at, at a desk job doing business stuff, or I'm going to work 40 hours a week. And again, you don't ride your bike 40 hours a week, but you probably ride 20, 25, 30 sometimes. And then the additional, mm-hmm. you know, hours are spent like you do stuff, like you've got to keep up your social media for your sponsors. And so all things equal, we're going 40 hours, business or cycling. And to you, it would be easier to put in the 40 hours on the cycling end than it would be easier to put the 40 hours in on the business end. So I think that's what you mean by I'm taking the easy way out is like I can sustain and do this even with all of its trials and tribulations. I can do the cycling thing and get through the hard times versus like, dude, I can be in the business sector. But man, after a couple of years of getting beat over the head with having to do this stuff, I really don't like like I'm going to tap out. I'm out of here. You know, I can't do this yeah. for, for a long time. And here you are you know, 11 years in, like, I mean, you're still doing it, man. I mean, this year you're on a team, you guys are going to do some great things. And we'll talk about that in a second, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think being equal, like from where I stand now, like I have no regrets with anything that I've done, but I also came from like a slightly different era too. You know, I grew up with TJ Van Garderen and Alex Howes and Ben King, you know, like all America's best cyclists, really. And, you know, I think Ben King went to school, went to college for a little while. I don't know if he ever finished or not, but I was like, well, I mean, I'm racing with them, you know, like I should do what they're doing. Like, granted, they didn't like just drop out of school and they're obviously at a much higher level now. But, you know, nowadays, like it's acceptable to race collegiately and then go into pro cycling like later. But, you know, I was like at the transition of that where, you know, a lot of domestic pros were not college kids, you know, like they were living the van life, like, and so like, that's just what I knew, you know, that's just like what I thought you had to do if you wanted to be a pro cyclist was just kind of be a bum. And, you know, I don't think I'm a bum by any means, but, you know, it was just different. It was a a bit more like rugged, I think. And now there's so many good development teams now, you know, Action, Evolo, I mean, there's CCB, like there's tons of development teams, but when I was younger, like those didn't exist. You had the national team, which was more full-time, like you had full-time residents uh, in Belgium, but like that doesn't exist anymore either. And unless you're noticed by some talent scout for USA Cycling, like your chances of getting on that are pretty slim. And then 2007, eight, you know, then you had like the Garmin under 23 team, which was good for a couple of years and then kind of like, faded away but you know now there's so many different development teams that you can get away with collegiate racing and you know getting a degree and balancing cycling and still make it like chad haga oh man when we were in texas together and he was on squadra yeah like he he was very very average and then he finished school was like i'm gonna try bike racing moved to colorado and the dude is a freak yeah yeah absolutely man so yeah so he's like the he's like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Like clearly an engineering degree, like and then best American like world tour racers. Like the dude has some out of hand work ethic. Yeah, but and he's a nice guy, so I like to cheer for Chad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely for sure. Just an aside for for Chad. Like I saw a thing on Twitter the other day. Out of all the pro tour uh, cyclists, like he won the unlisted kind of unknown 
uh, little bet that they have or little challenge that they have amongst themselves of who can do like the longest training ride for the year. And that dude put in a day where he did 349 kilometers wow. <laughs> in one day, in one training day. It's like, dude, get out of here, man. That's like unworldly. So yeah, to his work ethic, but Anyhow, so, dude, Andrew, so tell me about this. Okay, so the journey's obviously the plane's taken off. You know, you've got doors opening for you. San Jose, Metro Volkswagen, you go to you go to Nationals, have a good ride. Omar's like, hey, dude, who is this guy? Gets with Christian Helmig. Hey, here's his, here's his information. And you land on Bissell. Now you've got the goal that you wanted. You're like a pro cyclist, but, you know, you didn't just get there and camp on it, right? I mean, it's like, okay, cool. Now I have a, a job as a professional cyclist, but I've got to keep it. And, you know, for my own personal self, I want to get better and see how far I can actually take the pro thing now. But talk to us about, like, maybe some moments that you had where, I, I mean, did you? Well, did you? It's a yes, no question. Did you have any moments where you were like, you know what, dude? Like, this is crazy hard. This is taking a lot out of me. Like, man, I don't know. Like, I appreciate that they gave me the ride, but maybe this pro thing isn't for me. I mean, did you have any moments like that where you kind of went into a corner with your head down and you were kind of like, man, I, I don't know about this? Mm, honestly, not not those first few years. So when I got on Bissell, you know, I was well-known in Texas. And depending on who you ask, you'd get one of two answers. Like, Dahlheim, great bike rider, huge shithead. You know, I was just immature, like, you know, like, I was just like an arrogant little twit, you know, like, whatever, I was 20, 19, you know, like, I was just real immature. And so everyone would say, like, pretty good rider, but mostly just, like, arrogant. And so I knew that being on a bigger, better team, like, you have one mouth and two ears for a reason, like, listen, listen and ride hard. And so, well, first of all, I had, uh, I was working with Christian Williams as my coach for, a number of years, like all through junior, basically with a lot of success. And then when I made the jump, I was like, all right, well, you know, I'm getting older, no longer under 23. I'm a senior rider now. And like, I only have a few, because at the time you had, um, pro teams had to have an average age of 27. So yeah. I was like, well, I got three years where I can use age to my advantage. So I need to maximize these years. And so I switched to Kevin Livingston to coach me. And I was like, you know, I just, I want someone to coach me, no disrespect to Christian, because the guy's great, and I still, to this day, will refer people to him nonstop. But I was like, I just want someone who has ridden at, like, the top level, you know, and, like, just gets, like, a different perspective, you know, like, a just a different fresh eyes, fresh mind, you know, because Christian saw me, like, grow, and, you know, I think there would become, like like a sense of like bias from him, you know, like almost like he's kind of like not babying me, but just he'd be more lenient on me. Like if I got lazy in training, you know, like he'd kind of be, he'd be accepting of my lazy training. And I just wanted like someone who's, I don't want to say harder, but just like, just different, you know, like had to train for the hardest races, you know, like kind of knows how to just be prepared at every different race coming from every different possible scenario. And so whatever, moved on to Kevin and he's teaching me a lot of different methods and stuff like that. And my first year at Bissell Camp, I was rooming with Frank Pip, who I was similar to like riding styles. We had a lot of similar interests, like a very similar upbringing. And he was kind of, you know, probably 33 at that time. So he was a bit older and uh, he was just able to kind of instill a lot of wisdom into me. And he's someone that I still will talk to regularly and look to for you know, advice and everything. And uh, I think without Frank, honestly, um, that first year at camp, I would have just been floundering for a long time. And I was able to 
I think, accelerate my potential on the bike. As far as, you know, wanting, you know, this is too hard, like wanting to give up, like, I was always pretty hungry to, like, do better and, like, kind of jump through that, that hurdle of, you know, I was always getting fourth place in races. And uh, as a support rider, I was pretty happy with fourth place. But even, like, today, I'm like, man, I'm better than fourth place. You know, like, I just want to be on the podium. And so recent years, I've been able to, to take that next step, I think. But, you know, it gets pretty old, like, just being in hogtied, pigeonholed to, like, a, a, a support role where, like, you don't get a lot of opportunity and you're just kind of not a lot of not a lot of thanks for a lot of financial benefit, you know? Because, like, you can be the biggest teammate in the world, but you can still be ambitious at the same time, you know? And so, like, I loved my time with Bissell. I loved all my teammates. But when it folded, there weren't a lot of options out there. And I didn't want to, you know, race for no money. So the couple options I did have, I ultimately turned down. Like, I tried to walk away from the sport because I didn't want to make $6,000 for the rest of my life. And yeah. uh, so I packed up my stuff, moved back to Dallas, and started in uh, this golf thing, you know, because, again, it was something else that I really enjoyed. I was like, ah, you know, like if I'm, you know, doing something that I like to do, then it's not really work. Again, like thinking, you know, putting off school and uh, taking an easy way out, more or less. And then I got a call to race crits from Chad Hartley. And uh, that was athlete octane with Daniel Holloway. And I was, he asked what I wanted to make. So I gave him a dollar number and he's like, done. And that's all I needed to stay in the sport and kind of like light the fire. And, you know, ever since then, I've been going to a different team, landing on my feet, making the money that I needed to make to continue to do it. And Arapaho Resources was another great jump for me, uh, both financially, but as well as professionally, like from a racing standpoint. And I was able to help, you know, other guys kind of like pass on what little knowledge I had. And man, I've just been able to keep parlaying that in something bigger. And I mean, some people might say falling on your feet, but I'm still in the game for some reason, and I'll I'll take it. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say this. You said something that I want to make sure that the listener doesn't just kind of not get and take with them from this episode, but you talked about when people first, you know, in Texas, who was Dahlheim, and it was this cocky kid, and you you even admitted it. You were like, yeah, I, I was, you know, like I was this cocky kid that was on his way to be pro, like get out of my way, like. You know, and, and and I got a little bit of that from you when I raced against you. I was kind of like, well, but but you were pretty good. And, you know, again, that question, you know, what does it take to be good? Well, it takes a certain amount of confidence. And sometimes you can't get into the mind of that person, and you don't really know if that's actually confidence or if it's bordering on arrogance. And so, but I won't get into that, right? But either way, you kind of had that perception. People people perceived that from you from the outside. But even you perceived a little bit of it. And so you said, dude, I gotta, I can't do this. I, I can't be this way anymore. And man, I'll tell you right now, like, I mean, you and I have been friends for a long time. We always try to hook up for a ride when you come in for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and it never happens. But but we're good at just, we we contact each other at least once a year, every year. Super yep. approachable guy, super humble guy you are, man. Like, you know, people wouldn't be able to pick you, you know, out of a crowd. And, you know, yeah, you've landed on your feet, but why, you know? And I think this is important. Like, you can pedal a bike well, right? You've got a certain VO2 max that puts you at a certain level, obviously, to be able to be a professional. You can handle your bike really, really well. I mean, you're you're a crit, you know, monster. Like, you're just, 
you're really good at doing a lot of things, but let's face it, there's a lot of people around you even right now that have similar skills and can do it maybe just as well as you. What's setting you apart or part of what sets you apart is the fact that you've been awesome at being able to read and analyze the situation and go, oh, cool, like this is where I fit. This is what they need. Oh, awesome. This is where I fit. This is what they need. Like, you know, you jump onto Arapahoe, you're like, hey, man, I'll be team captain. Like these guys can use some, you know, I can sharpen the, the edges on some of these guys and make these guys better racers, you know, and I've seen it. Like I've seen since you've been on that team, I've seen those guys get better at bike racing and you filled that role, you know? And so everywhere that you've gone, you've kind of done something a little bit different on every team that you've been at, but you're one of those guys yeah. that people talk about. You know, I, I interviewed Brad yeah. Huff and he's been doing it for a long time. He's not the fastest guy on, you know, on, uh, his team anymore, right? But he adds value to that team in more ways than just pedaling the bicycle. And so you've been able to do that, and it's just been awesome. You have always landed on your feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, one of the first things I learned from Frank is, so we show up at training camp in Santa Rosa, and this is my first big team training camp, and there's this massive duffel bag full of all our clothes, shoes, helmets, gear, whatever, casual clothes, and it is massive, like, I could probably fit in this bag. <laughs> and the first thing I do is I just dump it out. And I just, like, look at it all. And I'm just, like, amazed, you know, like, take a picture, send it back home to my family. And and so Frank's probably looking at me like, oh, great. The young kid just, you know, just ha <laughs> happy to be here, but a mess, right? Like, he's probably thinking, like, great, he dumps out that whole bag, and it's going to stay like that. But as soon as I was, like, done swimming in it, I took it, uh, most of it out of the package. I folded it all up and I put it right back in the bag. And he was like, oh, you're one of those guys. You're real tidy, aren't you? And I was like, well, I like to keep it clean and organized. And he's like, that's good because no one wants to room with a slob. And so that kind of like stayed with me. So now every team that I'm on, I won't room with a slob. And I'll try to tell them like, hey, just it's cool if you like work with chaos, but just keep it controlled, you know, keep it in your domain because no one wants to live in your filth. And so I've just learned, like, bouncing around from different teams, like, it doesn't matter how good of a bike rider you are. But if you try hard, you work hard, and you're enjoyable to be around, you can stretch that. You know, like, you can make that last. And so I think that's, like, the number one thing that has been on my side is I'm generally a pretty neutral personality. Like, I try not to be too conflicting. And, and I keep my things clean and tidy. And, yeah. uh, so I think that's been like my secret weapon, honestly. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think about just knowing a little bit about the pro game is like, okay, cool. So I line up with you and we do a three and a half hour road race. But then after that, I'm in a van with you for eight hours. Oh my gosh. I better be able to stand you in a van more than I can stand you with three and a half hours at a road race. Cause I probably won't see you very often while we're racing, you know, every, yep. every little bit, but dude, I'm going to be able to see you, smell you and listen to you for every single minute of those eight hours on that van. So that's pretty important right there. I can't dismiss the fact that if I can't share a hotel room or a van with you or be on a plane ride next to you, you know, going all the way to Europe to go race, like, okay, this is not going to be good, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. And that's good for young people to, to know as well because, sure, you can pedal a bike, and that's awesome, and that might perk some ears up and everything, but they're going to ask about some of these intangible things that you don't think they're going to ask about, you know, and and they're important. I mean, 
not to beat the, you know, kick a dead horse, but it's like, if you're a slob and if you're not very neat with your stuff, then you might end up getting yourself sick, which then is going to get your roommate sick, which, I mean, let's face it, like now two guys aren't on the bike. Now we're not as good a team as we should be. So yep. just little things like that are important, and they definitely do management and, and teammates, and cycling is such a small community. Word gets around like, hey, you probably don't want this guy on your team because of X, Y, Z. I know that you need to look past the fact that his threshold is, like, unworldly, but I'm telling you it's probably not worth it, you know? And I think that's exactly. a good message for young folks to listen to. Exactly. Like, I was just I was going to a team where – I was no longer the best rider, like far from it. And so I was like, well, these guys are successful for a reason. So I need to listen to them and take from it, like whatever I can and use it. Um, and so now like moving on all these different teams that I've been on up until this point, I have been the best rider again. So, you know, try to pass that on and like any information that I can share with them that I think would be beneficial, like they can use it or not, but, at least I'm sharing it, you know, like I can beat it over their heads and like some people just aren't going to understand and they just have to learn at their own pace. But now I'm back on a team where I'm not the best rider and I love that. Like I love just being a cog in a system. Like I'm friends with all the guys, but I like just doing my job, minding my P's and Q's. And uh, after the race, like you might talk about the race for a little bit, but you know, your friends and everyone just gets along great. And I just, I like all the different personalities coming together and all the different. So we have like six or eight foreign riders and they all come from different like backgrounds and have learned different things. And so you can like just learn so much from each other that can help you. And I think that's as long as you can watch and observe, and take something out of everyone, then you're going to be pretty successful. Yeah. Dude, one of the things you said was, uh, you know, I've got one mouth and two ears for a reason. I love that. Yeah. That's wisdom right there, man. Andrew, tell us, what role do you think that the mind plays in your sport, like in cycling? Where do you think it fits? Dude, I think it's probably the most important part. I mean, like, it's no secret on how to get fast physically. Like, you just go ride your bike, really. I mean, you can get all technical with, intervals, base miles, you know, X number of hours, whatever, whatever. But you have to have confidence in what you're doing and confidence in your ability. And I've had more successful results from a week that I've done 10 or 12 hours than, you know, 20 plus, just because I've been happy about my home situation, uh, happy with what I did for training. Like, even though it was half the time, like, I felt like it was quality and so I just think, you know, if you show up to a race in a shitty mood, and perfect example, like last year, end of 2016, we did uh, well to Guatemala. And it was the end of season, like October. And I had had a, probably on paper, my most successful season. And so I was like pretty pumped to go do a 10-day stage race in Central America, race I'd never done, but, you know, it's a UCI race. So I was like pretty G'd up. So I go to Dallas for a buddy's wedding. And, you know, I'm still training like, through September and in October and I'm still waiting for my flight into Guatemala. And finally, like two days before I was supposed to leave, I got my flight. Well, it got to the point where I was like sure that I wasn't going to get a flight, but like the race had just been scrapped. 
And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to Guatemala. So I had like not touched a bike for like a week. Oh. And I fly into Guatemala. It's a week before the race. And I'm just like pretty irritated. Like, like nothing was organized at all. Yeah. And so I was just like, all right, so I'm going to Guatemala and my teammates are going to pick me up and we're going to stay where? Like the race starts when? The stages are what? And like I was just <laughs> in, in the dark, like just had no idea. And so like mentally, like by the time I land in Guatemala, like I'm checked out, like it's off season. And so I hadn't ridden in a week and I try to get in like some panic hours, you know, like I go do, you know, a three and a half hour ride just like as hard as I can just to like get fit real quick or just like get like those like race sensations back. And like, I feel pretty good on the bike, but you know, not great. I'm probably like a few pounds overweight, but still like I feel fit and I go to the race and first day was not that great. It was a lot harder than I was expecting it to be. And the second day I had a teammate crash like pretty badly on a descent. And I was like, Oh shit. Like he's not getting up. Like he's hurt. So I stopped with him. He ends up going to the hospital. I get back on the bike and start pedaling immediately up like this massive mountain. But A, because of the mentality that I came to the race with, and B, because my buddy is in an ambulance going to a hospital in a third world country, like I was done. Our team car caught up to us, and I just, I was done. You know, and like I just think, had I gone to the race in a better mindset, like I think it could have been a good race. But I just wasn't mentally ready to race. I wasn't ready to be there. Like I was already in off season and I can take that with like any race, you know, like I said earlier, like I always do well at national championships because that's like the one race a year that like I can get turned up for. And it's just, you know, who doesn't want to be a national champion? And so it doesn't matter if I'm like coming off a month of, of racing and I'm real fit or if I haven't raced in a while and have only been training, like I just always tend to have a good day at nationals and it just, it just always worked out that way. Yeah, it's like the mind wills the body along, you know, like one of the things that I say is, you know, you know, physiology submits to psychology, you know, and you come into nationals and you're like, well, I mean, you've done you've been doing this for so long. I'm sure there were years where you came in and you were like, dude, training has gone awesome. And then there were years where you came in and you were like, man, training has been terrible. And then there were years in the middle where it's lukewarm and you're like, man, I don't know which way this is going to go. But in all of those years, it sounds like nationals holds a special place for you where you kind of don't even look at like what the training has been, what it hasn't been. You just basically say, oh, cool. It's nationals time. Let's do this. And you bring a set of legs and sometimes they're better than others, but you bring a set of legs with you and you go, hey, guys, like we're going to make this a good day. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But I heard uh, you're a golf guy, right? So, you know, one of the most famous uh, sports psychologists for golfers is uh, Bob Rotella. And, you know, I heard him say something the other day that he said, you know, people ask me all the time, like, hey, what is it with like, should I always have a positive mindset? Like, I mean, is that like absolutely necessary? Like, that just seems to me like something that's just kind of fairy tale, kind of just too good to be true type of thing. And he, you know, Bob Rotella's answer was, well, you could not have a positive mindset but at least if you have a positive mindset all the time, you're going to at least give yourself a chance to perform at the level which you're truly capable of. And if you have a, ne- if you don't have a positive mindset, you bring a negative one to the table, then I guarantee you that you're not going to perform to the potential that you truly have. So it's kind of one of those things like sometimes you got to will the body along because it's not cooperating, but the mind has that power to be able to do that. It totally does. And like, 
in cycling, I can go to a race that I've done 10 times and know how it's going to play out and know where to be at whatever moment just because I've done it a hundred times and it'll work out exactly how I expected. But I could also go to a local race, like a, a weekly crit in Dallas that I've also done a hundred times and just be not motivated to do well and I'll get dropped. And just because I'm not willing to, like mentally, I'm just not willing to fight and give myself any kind of chance whatsoever. And yeah, and being like a golfer, try to do that as much as I can during the year responsibly without taking away from, you know, what I need to do. But I just think it complements cycling so well because, you know, I can go play golf every day for three months and, and be a pretty good golfer. Or I could go once in that same amount of time and shoot well. And it all just depends on how I'm thinking going into that round of golf. Like I know how to hit the golf shots. Practice obviously helps. But if I go in like, oh, I haven't played golf in a long time, like I'm going to suck. Chances are I'm going to suck. But if I'm like, oh, man, it's such a nice day, like I'm just playing golf. And I just go to not keep a score but just hit the ball around, I'll end up shooting pretty well. And that's just how it is. Gratitude definitely plays a part in there. And, you know, just from this interview, hopefully the listener can get it. Like, you're really grateful for the opportunities you've been given, for the people that have given you those opportunities, for for the races you've been able to go to. I mean, you dump out a bag full of clothes and you're just sitting there like a kid in a candy store. I mean... You're grateful for what cycling has provided for you for these last 11 years, and that's huge because that's allowed you to, quite frankly, look past. I'm sure we could spend another few hours talking about all the bad days you've had on the bike, all the bad experiences, all your bad crashes. Dude, I'm thinking about – I'm not going to bring it up. I'll just, I'll just leave it right there and we'll move on, but you know where I'm going, right? I mean, yep. you mentioned yep. Lago, and like I was there, and you were riding the day before, and it was like – we just heard you got taken out, man. And then, you know, we go race the next day and another guy got taken out. I'm, I'm talking, you know, this race has a lot of deer on it. Lago Vista, Texas is like on water. And so the deer really like to go down there and it's kind of, kind of, you know, have, has a little valley at the bottom. And so they like to camp out there. Well, we've got like this downhill on this course where we go over 40 miles an hour, like every single lap, like no problem. And Dahlheim had it, had a year there where, He's riding and the deer just come out of nowhere pretty much. And I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. And, uh, and he got injured pretty bad, but, but again, you know, you still go back to that race and do it because you're grateful for that race and you like it. And so you're able to kind of look past easier now than it was the day after it happened, but you're able to mm-hmm. look past some of those experiences. Well, I also like at the time, you know, with that particular crash, you know, I was like, oh, this sucks. This is half a year gone. But it was funny because it goes back to being like a young, arrogant little twit who thought I was like too cool. You know, it's coming off the winter where I had ridden a lot, but it was like, I remember being like pretty cold in Austin that winter. And so if it was below whatever, 50 degrees, I would be one of those people that just throws on a beanie and goes and rides, like no helmet. And uh, I remember, because when I hit the deer, it was the like the evening before that race. Yeah. And we had like, stayed in a condo like right there on the course by the start finish and so i get to the condo before everyone and like you know the sun is setting i'm like i'm gonna go do a couple laps of the course and just like go spin on my legs and so i unload my bike and i hop on it and i like start riding and i get 100 feet from the car and i'm like ah it's not cold like just go get your helmet so i go and put on my helmet and obviously hit the deer dead to rights and had nowhere to go and not only did i hit the deer but i hit uh so it's right on a golf course and there's like this big like decorative boulder 
at the bottom of this hill. Well, I went yes. face first. I went face first into that. And, wow. you know, at the time, you know, I'm not thinking this, but looking back, I almost did that ride with no helmet. Yeah, man. If I didn't yeah. have my helmet on, like, I'd be dead, more than likely. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. like, I haven't done a ride without a helmet, like, since. You know, if I'm clipped in, I'm wearing a helmet. And, like, it doesn't matter the temperature. Like, I don't care how stupid I look with a massive hat under my helmet. Like, it's, if you crash in training, it's 100% your fault, is what I say. And so, yeah. just be prepared. Yeah, so, I remember it, that, man. I, that's crazy. I remember, like, it was yesterday. Like, I show up on Saturday morning, and people are like, dude, Dahlheim hit a deer lap yesterday, man. He's banged up pretty good. Like, he won't be racing today. I was like, oh, man. But, uh, yeah. Let's land the plane with a couple good questions here, dude. Let's get off that, because that's negative. That wasn't a good day. But, again, right. you know, it, right. it is what it is, and it kind of was a good day. Because, if you, again, it depends on how you look at it, perspective. Like, I'm looking at it like, dude, that was terrible. You're looking at it going, dude, I was about to wear a beanie. Like, I could have been dead, yeah. right? So yeah. you're thinking, man, I mean, it was a bad day, obviously. I didn't want the crash to happen. But, man, am I thankful that I went back and got the helmet. You know, for whatever reason, you thought about that, and you made that change, and it and it worked out better for you than it could have. You know, not ideal, but better. But I want to ask you this question. I love hearing, because you guys get fired up when I ask you this one. Dude, give me an example of, like, a day at a race, at a competition, where, dude, you were just on. You were on, man. You know, I mean, in cycling, they say, like, it's like a no-chain day where you don't feel you have a chain on your bike. Like, your legs are just so good, and you're just focused, man. Can you go through one of those days for us that you had? Like a specific race that that's happened? Yeah, or mean, just, you, like, yeah. the sensations yeah, you, of that? Well, can you remember a race where that was you? You were like, dude, this is going down today. Like, I am untouchable. Did you ever have a day like that? Or maybe you haven't. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I've had, I've had a couple that stand out. Most recently would be the Elite National Road Race Championship in Louisville. Again, I think a lot of things play a factor into that. And number one, like course knowledge, like race knowledge, like knowing, having a good idea of how the race will play out. You know, like you just kind of can take confidence knowing that like, all right, well, this is going to happen at this point and it's probably going to be, you know, finished this way or whatever. So course knowledge definitely plays a big role. And then being motivated for the event is obviously crucial but this last year at elite nationals again it's always been like my one goal every year where i'm like i'm not the type of guy that's going to raise my hand and say work for me today but the last two or three years that's been elite nationals and so this year a familiar course one that suits me well just kind of like rolling punching hills and pretty long race of attrition for sure starts early in the morning and usually runs for about five hours and myself and my teammate morgan schmidt we're in a break of you know, elite national time trial champion and pretty much every big name in the race. And we're just rolling along and you just felt like I could do no wrong. Like I would ride hard when I needed to ride hard, attack when I needed to attack. And uh, at the end of the day, with like two laps to go, like 10 miles maybe, we still got caught by the field and I didn't win the race, but I was away basically start to finish of this race and I still got fifth in a bunch sprint. And I was pretty gutted to get fifth, but I was like all over the place and just felt like I'm disappointed that it didn't end the way that I felt that it should have ended, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. And I just felt like I could do everything. And then yeah. there was this other race, Joe Martin, 2012. I was on Bissell at the time. And again, I'm just a cog on a team. You know, I'm just, I do my job. You know, I know, um, depending on the stage, like it just, it's, I'm either going to be getting bottles and 
feeding the guys. I'm going to have to ride the front or lead outs or whatever, but very rarely will I get an opportunity to get a result. Well, first road stage, our whole lead out crashes on this downhill sprint finish, and I'm the only guy who doesn't go down miraculously. And I just follow wheels to a fourth place on a downhill sprint. Like, not that fourth is great, but I was able to salvage a result for the team where it was otherwise pure chaos. Then in the crit, like I had done that crit 10 times probably, and maybe not that many, but a lot. So I knew the course. I knew when it was easy, when it was hard, when to recover. And I was just like, on a good day, I was pumped. Like I'd gotten word that I would do tour California that year. And so I was like riding good, training well, had some good races the previous couple weeks. And in the crit, I attacked from the gun and spent a couple laps off the front with, you know, one or two other guys. As soon as we get caught, I counterattack, get a couple guys from like the Columbia national team with me and I'm outnumbered like three to one or something, but I'm still just kind of riding. And uh, by the time we get caught, it's like inside five to go. And there's a quarter of the field left. Like there's no one left. It's real hot. And at that point, I'm like, all right, well, we have Frank and Eric, like they're going to win. And so I'm like, just hang on, you know, like you've done your job, like in the break all day, getting preems, whatever, and having representation up the road. Well, it comes down to the sprint and Eric is kind of isolated. So I get up to Eric Eric Young from, from Rally now, and I just get in front of him, and there's like a little false flat before the final corner, and of course, it's an uphill finish, and I just get him on my wheel, and I just go as hard as I can through the last corner, and uh, he ends up smoking the stage and, and wins, and I basically just explode and finish last out of the group, where I look at the results later, and because the race was so hard, I got out 30th, you know, yeah. and like that's that usually doesn't happen in a field sprint, and so... I just felt like that day right there, kind of like nothing could have gone better. Like I didn't win the stage, but I was able to do my job and then some. And it was pretty funny. Like that was such a good race for me. And apparently in the eyes of like my director at the time. So I was supposed to do Gila the next week. And uh, since I was a late addition for the Gila roster, I was going to be driving with the staff in their vans to Silver City. Well, because I had such a good Joe Martin our director ended up booking a flight so I could fly with the team instead of driving. And that ended up being like a $600 flight or something. But yeah, that's yeah. pretty much, uh, those are the two days that stand out the most is like just no chain. Like I can do anything today. Like didn't win either one of them, which goes to show like how ruthless bike racing can be. But you know, those right. were good, those were good well, days. But yeah, at the same time, a couple of things, like you're telling it from your perspective. So you're not telling it from the perspective of the person that won. I mean, I, right, like I asked you what days stand out for you, you know, so it is personal. And, you know, that's something for folks to take away. It's like everybody can't win, but everybody can give their best effort, you know. So on those days, you gave your best effort. I mean, dude, that crit in uh, at Joe Martin, I mean, people say that that's one of the hardest crits for the year for a professional to do on the calendar. I mean, you guys. I race that race in the one twos. We race it for 60 minutes. You guys do 90 on that thing. I mean, it's not a mystery to me why there's nobody left at the end of y'all's race because it is a tough course. So you're in the early breakaway and you guys get caught and like you're still able to get in there and lead out, you know, your teammate who eventually wins it. Like, 
I mean, that's huge, right? So yeah, you get 30th and like nobody came and like went, Hey man, that was, that was awesome, dude. Like, but at the same time, you know what you did, right? You had a personal sense of satisfaction from that particular day. The same thing with the previous day on that, by the way, I'm glad they got rid of that thing. Cause I remember watching that crash and I thought people were literally dead. Like that downhill yep. sprint was so sketch, but you know, same thing happened there, you know, where it was like, you're a support rider, but at the same time, what you've done is you developed a keen sense of awareness to where, hey, if something goes wrong, like, I can help pick up the pieces and make something of nothing. And that's what you did there. It was like, the day wasn't planned for you on that downhill sprint, but, well, if everybody crashes and I'm the last guy, like, let me try and do something. And you sprint and you get fourth, which is pretty awesome. So, but, uh, yeah, man, one more question for you. Like, mm-hmm. They're listening. This has been a great episode. A lot of things being said, but if you can package it up and give one last thing that you would give to the listeners, even if it's something maybe you already said before that you want to repeat, like what would you say to them? Just looking at things from your perspective, where you've been, the experiences you've had. Man, so I guess I'll, I'll probably use a story here. I recently, you know, Adam Coble. Yeah. He, he was at my sure. house. He was at my house a couple months ago and he's kind of like feeling like he's like at a, at a crossroads, so to speak. And uh, he's like real into photography and everything and kind of wants to go down that road and see where he can take that. And after giving bike racing a go for a number of years. And, you know, I was just like, you know, you can get a couple of different ideas, like places to go, things that he wanted to do. And I was like, you know, like whatever you want to do, like or wherever you want to be, you should just make sure that your in game is going to lead to your, your happiness, you know, doing like what makes you happy. So like if you need to go back home to Minnesota, like work to raise some money so then you can move somewhere like, you know, like that's good, but make sure like your end game is going to make you happy because surely being in Minnesota isn't going to like lead to your ultimate happiness. So like if you want to be in Asheville, like you should go to Asheville. And so like that's kind of how I've been the last 10, 11 years where it's like, what I'm doing is what makes me happy and like, what do I need to do to continue doing this? And it's just, you know, make the, the necessary sacrifices and doing, uh, doing all the things that you don't really want to do, but it beats the alternatives, like being grateful for, for what you have and just following what you want to do and not chasing something that you think you should do. And so I guess like, yeah, if I, if I could just like leave one thing there, it's just like, don't like conform to what you think you should be doing. Just do like what you want to do. Yeah, man, Adam, you made the podcast, bro. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know Adam too. Great guy, great friend of mine. And it's funny, Andrew, he's come to me and he's like, dude, I, I love taking pictures. I'm like, you're good at taking pictures. Like, keep taking them, right? Like, your Instagram feed is awesome, and, and you go to cool places, and you've got you've got a real talent for that. And, you know, I've, I've, I've done the same thing. I've, I've told them, like, why don't, you, why don't you keep taking this thing as far as it's going to go, you know? Go, go see. Go explore. Go, go be successful. Go fail a couple of times and fix it and figure it out. Like, so it's cool that uh, he's getting that advice from several different people because – you have been able to make a career of it, but you couldn't have done it without people telling you the same thing. Like as soon as some people started coming up to you saying, Hey man, great job. You know, I mean, I admire what you're doing, you know, and I'm a fan and it's like, Hey, keep doing that, dude. Like good on you for doing what you love and for providing this lifestyle for yourself that you're happy with and that, that you can, you know, on that day, you can look at it and go, man, 
you know, I lived a good life. I'm, I'm glad. I, I'm, I'm happy with the decisions that I've made. You know, I don't regret these decisions. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's excellent advice for anybody to take with them. So, all right, Andrew, you're going to be at Red Bull last stand, I think. So you kind of penciled that one in, or at least you want to be there. But, yeah. You know, for people that want to follow Texas. you guys. Yeah. So you guys are going, you know, you're going pro Conti. You guys are doing it big this year. You know, we talked off the record. You've got some really cool things. You guys are going to go to Europe for a little bit. You guys are, I mean, you guys are like getting after it this year and you've got a great roster. So for people that, Oh, cool. Like I want to follow that Andrew guy, you know, and his team. Can you tell us about some places where they can go social media wise, team social media, your own social media, whatever you can give them so that they can kind of follow along your journey now that they know you a little bit more on a personal level? Sure. So if you want to follow the team on Twitter, it's just at Team Hincappy. And, uh, and you can actually follow me on Twitter as well at Andrew Dahlheim. And then uh, you can follow at Andrew Dahlheim on Instagram as well. And then, of course, uh, the team on Instagram is at Team Hincappy. So pretty easy. A lot of good content going up right now. Just uh, posted a picture of our new team cars, which looked pretty sharp, actually. Real excited about that. Awesome. Well, Andrew, man, hey, thanks so much for your time, dude. And, uh, yeah, I just I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. And, uh, you know, I know that a lot of the stuff that you spoke about is definitely going to be useful for those folks that are listening to this, man. So thanks so much. Yeah, man, thank you. And, yeah, next time I'm in town, we got to go out for a ride. You, I wish you didn't live so far from Dallas because, well, the last time I was there, the weather was pretty crap. But, yeah, we got to get together for a ride one of these days. That's it, bro. I just got to make the time. I just got to get it. I got to yep. get down. I got to get up there to you, and we got to do it, man. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks, thanks again. Andrew, and, appreciate and we'll, it. Later, man.